Amen. Good morning, church. All right, we're going to dive into God's Word. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. And that's what they call a curveball. Uh, we've been in this Esther series. I'll explain to you why we're going to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you'd start turning there. While you're turning, let me just say uh, a hearty welcome to our guests who are with us this morning. It's a joy to have you here. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you're, you're encouraged by our time. Live stream friends, thanks for being here and joining us. So our, our staff, our Brook Hill staff has been away on retreat for the past couple of weeks, uh, past couple of days leading into the weekend. And it was just, it was such an awesome time, a wonderful time. We've, we are blessed to have uh, a group of godly and competent, gifted, um, servant-hearted men and women on our staff. I'm so thankful. So if we could just say thanks to our staff, I would love for that kind of encouragement. Yes. Amen. Deeply, deeply thankful for them and for the time we had together. We had lots of fun. We played game, bazooka. We shot each other bazooka ball a thousand times. We, uh, we sat under teaching. So we brought in a guest speaker and that was really refreshing for me as well because it allowed me just to sit there and, and not have to come up with content, just to drink it in, sit at the tables, praying together, sharing. It was awesome, I think, for all of us. Um, on Friday morning, I did share just a brief devotional word from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And after I shared it, a couple of our leaders came up afterwards and said, you should pray about sharing that with our broader church family. And I left there and did pray about sharing it with our broader church family. And then the next day, I was like, Chris, I think we're going to... I think we're gonna turn and not do Esther this weekend. We'll just do an overflow for the whole church of some things we've been thinking about at our staff retreat. So that's why we're here in 2 Timothy chapter four. If you would look at verse nine, I'm gonna start reading there. The apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says this. Make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So I'm calling this message, We Run Together. 
And the reason I'm calling it We Run Together is right before the passage we just read, Paul says his famous words back there in verse six of this same chapter where he says, the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. So some of you know this because I've had occasion to share it in sermons from time to time that last year in the early summer, I started running and uh, and I hated every minute of running. Um, and, and even, so that's how it started. Here's how it's going. I still hate running. Uh, it's kind of a complicated relationship at this point. I kind of have a, a love-hate relationship with running. Um, I, w- once I knew I was gonna commit to it, so this isn't like on week one. You know, weeks one through 12, I was running in cargo shorts. You know, uh, I, I was not committed to the art, right? So, but once I was in it for long enough, I'm like, all right, it's time for an investment. It's time to get the real gear, the real stuff, which means a decent pair of shorts, a decent pair of running shoes, a Garmin watch that tracks my mileage and my heart rate on the, on the run. And then there's a Strava app. So Strava is basically Facebook for runners. And it allows runners to not only see and post the run, and that you post the run and it's got all the data, where you were, what your heart rate was, how hard you were pushing, right? All that stuff is your post, but then your friends can find you. Your running friends find you on Strava and they can hit like and they can give you attaboys and they can pop into your comments section. So I've started to develop my kind of running community through Strava. And and there was a, a guy that I was running past out at Herdmont one day, he looked familiar, but he was running real fast, so he was kind of a blur. He was running faster than the rest of us. And there's kind of a rule, I would learn this rule later on, but the rule is the faster you run, the shorter your shorts have to be. Uh, and, uh, and he was running very fast, so his shorts were flapping terribly. Um, so that's him, he, and he's running past me, he's a blur, and he's going past me, but he did look familiar, and he said, hey Matt, as he ran past me. So I'm like, okay, so apparently we know each other. Um, maybe when we slow down, I'll actually get to find out who, he, who that man was, right? So he shows up in my Strava and he requests to be my friend that afternoon. And I posted that race, that run, that day, and he made his first comment. So now I know his name and now I have the first comment. And I, I would find out later on that this guy is a legit actual running coach. So he showed up in my comment section and he didn't say, hey, great to see you out there today or hey, great run or whatever. His very first comment was this. It'll be on the screen. (laughs) So that was the actual first moment that we interacted. Get those knees up. He saw as I was going past uh, that my running form was terrible. My footfall was terrible. My, you know, hip flexion was all, and he was just pointing this out in a very kind of, it had a smiley face at the end, so it wasn't like harsh or anything. Get those knees up with a smiley face at the end. Well, here, in a way, the reason I think about that is here we are, the Apostle Paul's at the end of his life, and he is running the race He is the great legendary gospel marathon runner and he's been running for decades. And and here he turns back around right before he breaks through the tape and he pulls up in Timothy's Strava account and he says, keep those knees up, young man. (laughs) Right, I saw you out there running and I want you to go the distance. And so he's exhorting this younger son in the faith how to run 
well? How do Christians run the distance? How do Christians run with joy? And so Paul, in that sense, he's preparing you and me to run, to run the race of faith. And he's preparing us to run this race by reminding us of four realities. We'll start with this one. Number one, the reality of trials. He's preparing us to run by reminding us of the reality of trials. So this is not an exhaustive list of trials right here in 2 Timothy chapter four, but, but one of them is this. Don't be surprised by departures. Don't be surprised by departures. You see his language there? Demas has forsaken me or has deserted me since he loved this present world. So earlier in this very same chapter, Paul predicted that people would do this that Christians would do this, professing believers would do this. He says in chapter four, verse four, that believers will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. You know, one of the signs that we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture is that apostasy is trending now. I mean, deconversion is what all the cool kids are doing out there these days. There are, there are TikTok videos of people who used to profess to follow Christ and now they're trying to help other people stop professing to follow Jesus Christ, giving them reasons to not believe, whereas before they had all these reasons to believe. A, a well-known Christian author named Joshua Harris has recently publicly renounced his faith in Jesus Christ, which hits really hard for me because I knew Josh when we were kids. Um, his aunt and uncle, Fred and Tani, his uncle Fred and aunt Tani, um, uncle Fred was my dad's associate pastor in New Orleans. So when Josh's parents and family would come visit in New Orleans, Josh and I would play together out in front of our church building. We had mulberry bushes and we'd hop over the mulberry bushes and time each other. He taught me to do a front handspring. He was very involved in gymnastics. He was very athletic. And, and I had fun playing with him almost every summer and then we kind of lost touch over the years and I ended up working much later, you know, in my early adulthood, working in a Christian bookstore for a little bit of time. I saw a book on the top of our bookstore shelf one of the first days I was working there and I was gonna go put it where it belonged and I flipped it upside down and I saw Josh. And I was like, Josh wrote a book. It had just come out. I flipped it and it was like, this is a bestseller. But my friend Josh wrote a bestselling book and then you fast forward a couple more years, we end up in the same network and association of churches. So now we have occasion to reconnect and talk about our history and Uncle Fred and Aunt Tani and all of that, right, and reconnect. And, and that's when I started to really dial into Josh's faith and his preaching was so Christ-centered. It was so heartfelt. Tears would be in his eyes, great passion. He would proclaim Jesus from the text of God's word for God's people and I was always so edified by his teaching and his preaching. And if you would ask me 10 or 15 years ago, give me a short list of pastors you think will run the race with joy all the way to the end and keep professing and proclaiming Jesus, I would have put Josh on the short list. And it was surreal to hear my friend renounce his faith. And then to hear, I listened to a podcast a few weeks ago called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And in that podcast, they interview my old friend, and the podcast host is asking him about the Christian faith and I hear my friend who once preached Jesus renouncing the Christ that he used to proclaim. And for Paul, it would have been that kind of feel. I, I'm not surprised when people turn away, but Demas, 
Demas, Demas helped me plant churches. Demas shows up at the end of other letters from Paul when he gives shout outs. He's like, my friends say hi. And sometimes his friend is Luke or Silas or Aristarchus. Twice in two different letters, Paul says, Demas is right here. We just got run out of town. We were doing gospel mischief in Jesus' name. And Demas and I are greeting the church there. You know my boy, Demas. He says hi to the believers there. And then here at the very end of Paul's life, he says, Demas is gone. He, he, didn't, he didn't quit the ministry. He quit the race. He fell in love with this present world. Some departures in this passage, I don't think they're apostasy. So that next one, you see there, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. You know, sometimes the departure is that God picks somebody up and says, I'm gonna use you over here. And that makes it hard for you because that person held you up. That person made your Christian faith buoyant. That person was made, made your Christian life sustainable. You leaned on them and now they're leaving. I asked my mom, my mom's been in ministry for over 50 years, her entire adult life. Matter of fact, she started playing organ at the church that her dad pastored, my grandpa. She started playing in that church when she was 11 years old. And then she married my dad and they planned, she married him when she was 17 years old, right after they graduated high school. And she served with him, they planted a church. She, she bled that church, she, she sweated, she poured tears out in, to, to benefit that church alongside my dad and then my dad dies and then my mom marries a man who's a missionary in Costa Rica. She becomes a missionary in Costa Rica and then he retires, his church is then gonna be led by a native Costa Rican who was raised up to lead and then he comes back with my mom and they start from scratch in Texas and plant a church in Texas. So this is 50 plus years of church planting and church work, she's done it all and I asked my mom about five years ago, mom, what's the hardest thing about working in church? You know what she said? Departures, people leave and you needed them. People sometimes leave, they didn't even tell you they were gonna leave, you just find out they're gone. It's like I buried your parents, I've, I've held your babies, I've, we've wept together and you're gonna leave and not even let us know that you left. And she said, other departures, it's, it's, not, it's not that, it's, it's just the Lord calls people to another place but you were so strengthened by their presence here. You know, we've got people in our church, they're having a hard time because God moved them to Birmingham and then he moved them to the Church of Brook Hills and they don't have friends yet. And so that's part of our task. That's where we come in. Small groups come in, men's ministry comes in, women's ministry comes in, on ramps for you to say, hey, welcome. You wanna have dinner? You wanna have coffee? You wanna come to our house? You wanna join my small group? Right, so that nobody feels isolated, so that departures end up being a place where people find gospel community. So you just imagine, you're Luke. Just pretend you're Luke for a second. Paul says, Luke alone is with me. So you used to have a small group with five people in it. You're Luke and it was you and Paul and Demas and Crescens and Titus. You're having a blast. You're growing in the faith together. You're going on mission together. Then you come to next small group meeting and Paul says, it's just us today. Matter of fact, it's just gonna be us. Crescens is gone. Titus is gone. And Demas left the faith. It's just you and me now. Departures, don't be surprised by departures. Don't be deterred by opposition. Don't be deterred by opposition. Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. What kind of harm did he do? We don't know for sure. 
Some think that this is the same Alexander Paul talks about in his first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, in the very first chapter, Paul is kicking two people out of the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And some think that this is that same Alexander. He had a chip on his shoulder and then he went down the road, found Paul ministering in a territory where they were hostile to the gospel and he informed on the apostle Paul, got him arrested in Troas, which is where he parted, Paul parts company with all of his belongings, including his coat, which he's gonna need back from Troas. And they think that that's kind of a way to reconstruct the history of what went wrong. Alexander Coppersmith is the one who got me landed in jail. I'm gonna die here. He did me great harm. Watch out for him. You ever meet somebody, find somebody along your journey in your life whose presence in your life makes following Jesus extremely difficult? Maybe they're positioned in a close relationship to you and you have to claw your way to make spiritual progress because they're just holding you back, hindering you, taunting you, right? You're wanting to obey Christ and they're inviting you to disobey Christ. It makes it so hard, right? You're pulling against that negative spiritual pressure, right? Sometimes even fellow Christians can hinder God's work in our lives. You remember the apostle Peter, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Everything's gonna change there. Peter says, no, you're not going to the cross. I've got other plans for your life, right? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He says that to Peter. Why? Because Peter, you don't realize your counsel fundamentally disagrees with God's will for my life. You need to get out of my way. I was just about to obey the Father in the mission that I was sent for and you're trying to hold me back. Pilgrim's Progress is the great Christian allegory of the Christian life written by John Bunyan a couple of centuries ago. And in the allegory, as you read through, there's this follower whose name is Christian. He's a follower of Jesus. His name is Christian. And so many of the hindrances and difficulties for him to move faithfully toward the celestial city are people hindrances. They're actually even named allegorically after the things that they do. So he has Mr. Legalist, Mr. Hypocrisy, Mr. Facing Both Ways. You know, somebody whose foot is in the kingdom and their other foot is in the world. And there's another character, and guess who that character's name is? Demas. And Demas in the story of Problems Progress is this gentlemanly figure who tries to entice Christian with silver and dreams of wealth. And that's John Bunyan's hat tip to 2 Timothy chapter four. Demas has loved this present world. The shine got on him. Opposition is real. Paul prepares us to run by reminding us of one, the reality of trials, two, the urgency of the gospel. The urgency of the gospel. You see this in a couple of different places. Chapter four, verse 15. Watch out for him yourself, for he strongly opposed our words. He strongly opposed our message. Verse 17. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. What does that tell us about Paul's ministry? It tells us this, ministry is basically this, the whole word grasped by disciples. The whole word of God grasped by the whole people of God. Paul says, here's what I want to do. And the moment the Lord strengthened me, I went back to doing what I was called to do, which is to fully preach God's word. Ministry was was message driven, not event driven. 
Message-driven, not program-driven. The word does the heavy lifting. It always has, it always will. Friends, faithful ministry, faithfully running the race means this. Filling believers' minds and hearts with the word of God. That kind of goes without saying, right? That's really simple, but because it goes without saying, we need to keep saying it. Faithfully running the race means filling believers' minds and hearts with the word of God. You think about that, the tea bag that you drop into hot water. You, you drop it into hot water and, and it's, the, the water begins to absorb the flavor of the tea bag. It works its way out. You drop it in and you wait. You drop it in and you set a timer and, and the rest starts to happen as the water is filled with the flavor of the tea bag. Well, so follow that analogy all the way through. The tea bag is the gospel. The water is believers, and the lowering of the bag is ministry. What we do, you and me, we lower a bag and wait. <laughs> we lower a bag and pray for absorption. Parents, that's Christian parenting. Lower the bag and wait. <laughs> lower the bag and pray for absorption. We don't have access to the hearts of our children, but the Lord does. What we do have is a tea bag. <laughs> and we lower that thing in there and we pray for God to work. Let me ask you this question. How will you encourage other believers with life-giving words from God this week? How will you renew your own mind as a follower of Jesus in God's word this week? Do you have a plan for that? Is that gonna happen? Speaking of renewing your own mind in God's word, the Apostle Paul is all the way to the end of his life is so hungry for scripture. He's so hungry for God's word. I love what he says in verse 13. So he wants three things. He's, he's given him a little list of things that he wants Timothy, I need you to get here and I need you to bring three things. I need my coat because it's cold. He says, do your best to get here before winter comes at full form, but it's already cold and I need my coat. I left it with Carpus in Troas. So bring me my cloak, bring me my scrolls and bring me the parchments. Many believe that the, the scrolls were, were portions of the Old Testament scripture and the parchments were basically a moleskin. <laughs> Ways that he could read the Old Testament scripture and write make notes, make observations, use his Hebrew parsing skills that he learned from Gamaliel decades ago. In other words, Paul's at the end of his life and he says, I need a coat because it's cold and I need me some Isaiah. Bring me the scrolls. It's like, you're gonna be dead in five minutes. I wanna go out studying. <laughs> I wanna go out learning God's word. I wanna go out making observations from the text of scripture. He goes all the way to the end of his life. Matter of fact, I love how he says, especially the parchments. <laughs> in other words, Bring me the coat, the scrolls, and the parchments. If you forget anything, forget the coat. But I'm gonna need that scroll and I'm definitely gonna need those parchments. Right, we never arrive. We want to always grasp God's word better and better all the way to the end. So, so ministry, and what about mission? Mission is the word proclaimed in the whole world. So it's not enough for the word to be fully preached here, wherever Paul is. Paul wants the whole message to be fully preached 
in all the nations, among all the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So my, my first uh, missions trip here as a part of Brook Hills, we moved, my family moved here in 2012. We had done a lot of missions trips in the past. Matter of fact, my wife and I, when we first got married, we, we did a midterm experience basically for a couple of years. We worked for a missions organization that took the gospel to various parts of Mexico. So we always, every time I got my passport stamped, we were going to Mexico to take the gospel to places in Mexico. And then I got to Brook Hills and I saw people and met people who had passport stamps from all over the world. And, uh, and I started to ask people just informally, independently, I would just start to say, okay, so if I'm gonna bring my family on one of these trips, y'all got a ton of them, which trip do you think I should go? I've only been to Mexico. Which trip do you think I should go to next if I wanna bring the kids and, and do that? And a lot of people, again, independently of one another, what I kept hearing people saying is, Ecuador, go to Ecuador. Ecuador is a great on-ramp for seeing God's work in other places. It's not Mexico, so, but, but there's also some tie-ins to places that you've already been. So go to Ecuador. I kept hearing Ecuador, Ecuador. Well, so I'm here for two months and David Platt, the pastor at the time, says, um, let's, let's go somewhere else. Um, if you're willing, and I know you just got, you're not even unpacked out of your boxes, but I wanna take you um, to North Africa. <laughs> let's go to the Horn. Um, so that was kind of the, the opportunity there. So I'm two months in to my time here at Brook Hills and I'm going to the Horn of Africa. And it was a two-stage trip that we did. It was just a few of us. So it was David Platt, Corey Varden, Jonathan Bean, who's now with the Lord, and me. And we went to Kenya for, for a bit. And there in, in the Kenya stint, we stayed in a, in a place where there was a, a mosquito net over the bed. And uh, I have some insect issues uh, occasionally, and that was playing with my mind a little bit. Some of you know my insect issues here in the room, but they, so there's a net over the bed that was working on me a little bit, and then I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom, so I'm gonna have to come out from under this net for just a second. So I come out from under the net, I go into the bathroom, use the restroom, and then I, I wash my hands and I look in the mirror, and there's a mosquito right here, and he had malaria written all over him. Um, and I knew he had bad intentions and I knew he had something terrible to give me. And if you were outside that bathroom, I promise you, it sounded like there was a fist fight between two humans inside that bathroom because he was going to die in this bathroom before I leave. I'm not gonna climb out from under into my net. He's gonna slip in under, I'm not even gonna give him a chance, right? So he's gotta die right here. So you move from that to then there's the other stage of that trip. And we're staying in, in a guest house. And uh, I'll never forget this. I hear David Platt go, ooh. And, and I look down the hall. I can see this like it was yesterday. I look down the hall, so, so I'm there and I'm looking this way. And here's David. And he's looking here. And there's something on the closet. And as I get closer, it is a massive spider. And David goes and he grabs his towel and he is like gingerly walking toward the spider. And about four feet away, the spider leaps off at David and, and three things happen. David screamed, Corey screamed, Jonathan laughed and I shouted, I knew I should have gone to Ecuador. I was not ready for the Horn of Africa. I was not, the logical next step from Mexico was Ecuador, it wasn't, it wasn't this, right? But the reason that we were looking at North Africa 
is because so few have heard in North Africa, in Addis Ababa. So few have heard. Many people groups out there who don't know the name of Jesus, which is why we were there. And here, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's at the end of his life, and he's got this brightness in his old apostolic eyes. And what's that brightness? It's all the Gentiles have got to hear this. All the nations must hear this gospel. The reality of trials, the urgency of the gospel. Third, the ultimacy of grace. The ultimacy of grace. And you see this in a couple of different ways. The, the first is in these words where Paul says, bring Mark with you for he is useful to me in the ministry. And that might be lost on us if we don't know the history of Paul and this guy named Mark. Well, the history is you go back to Acts chapter 12, Paul and, and the other missionary light of the New Testament, namely Barnabas, and they would travel around and plant churches together. Barnabas had a cousin named John Mark, this young man who had aspirations to do ministry. And Barnabas said, hey, can John Mark, my cousin, join me on this trip and help us plant churches? And Paul said, yeah, apparently yes. So, so they go off together and they get into uh, the heat of gospel mission. And there is major opposition and pushback in the town of Pamphylia. And they turn around to look for John Mark and John Mark has hightailed it out of there. He didn't leave a note. He didn't say, I feel bad, stomach infection. He didn't say, he just disappeared and just goes back from Pamphylia, just goes AWOL and goes back to Jerusalem. And Paul marks him. And later on, after they planted these churches and then they go back and then they're about to go out again and Paul says, Barnabas, we've got to go back and encourage those churches we planted a little while ago. And Barnabas says, cool, I'll call my cousin. And Paul says, don't call your cousin. He's, not, he's flaky. He's, fl he's immature. Maybe later, but not now. He flaked out on us in a pretty important moment. So he's not coming. Barnabas said, oh yeah, I'm gonna give him another chance. Paul said, not on my watch. It was such a deep divide and argument between the two of them that they end up, the two lights of missionary activity in the New Testament had to go in different directions. Paul goes this way and, and Barnabas goes this way with his cousin, John Mark. The lightning rod that caused the two greatest leaders in the early church to temporarily part company was the failure of the man who wrote the earliest gospel, the gospel that bears his name, the gospel according to Mark, also known as, also known as John Mark. There was a time that Paul was done with Mark and God wasn't. God doesn't write people off. God still had plans for the future ministry of young John Mark. And, and the beauty of it is, here's Paul at the very end of his life, and he says, Timothy, a bunch of good people have left me, some for really, really good reasons to go out and minister in other places. I need you to get here and get here before winter. I wanna see you before I die, and I want you to bring that young man, Mark. <laughs> He's useful to me in ministry. You see the beauty of, of God's restoring plan that he doesn't give up on people. There's not just gospel doctrine in New Testament. There's gospel culture infusing this. God doesn't give up on people. And then this, grace has the last word. Grace has the last word. So, so in 2 Timothy, actually, grace has the first word and the last word. In chapter one of 2 Timothy, 
Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So grace on the front end. And then chapter four, verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. I'm riveted by last words. I read, I've read quotes from great saints of old and theologians from the past looking up their last words, John Newton's famous last words, what I know is this, that I am a great sinner, but Christ Jesus is a great savior. Wonderful words that ring out through history of last words of saints. You know Paul's last words? He says, Timothy, the Lord is with you. Grace to you. Grace to all of you. He saves the best word for last, the reality of trials, the urgency of the gospel, the ultimacy of grace, and finally, the necessity of friends. The necessity of friends. So I've got my, um, my Strava running app with my community of fellow runners, people who, who chime in and say, boy," who cheer me on as they see my run post-its. I ran yesterday, and, and in comes Rhodes and Daniel and people who are, some of whom are in this room. They're my running buddies. Even when we're not running together, there's a sense of, I saw that, good job, way to stay out there, right? And I'm cheering them on, and they're cheering me on in this race that we're running, right? Well, Paul, he ends his letters, and so often he ends his letters, and he's given a shout-out to who? His running community, we're running the race together at the, end of chapter, at the end of Romans. He's got 33 running buddies. This is all the people in his Strava app. These are the people who have cheered him on and he's been cheering them on. And at the end of this letter, at the very end of his life, he named 15 people who he runs with. And he says, you've helped me run the race all the way to the end and you've helped me to run it with joy. And what are their names? Just look down on your passage and you see it just jumping off the page. Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Carpus, Prisca, Aquila, Anesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. And what do those 15 names shout? They shout Paul didn't do ministry alone. They shout Paul didn't try to run the Christian race alone. Here's my question for you. You might not have 15 names, but I hope there's some list of names of people in this church, in your covenant community, who help you run the race. And equally, I hope you show up on somebody's list. I hope they, they would be able to say to you, I run better and more faithfully because you're in my life. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. That's the church. <laughs> it's a running community. It's you and me pulling up alongside and say, get those knees up. Let's run the distance. Let's run it with faith. Let's run it with the gospel in our eyes. You know, the hard thing about this passage is also the most beautiful thing about this passage. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me, including the people you just greeted? Yes, everyone means everyone. May it not be counted against them. There's grace to his friends who failed him. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who can sound that buoyant when they're friendless? Who can sound that way, that joyous, when their friends have just let them down 
on the darkest moment of his entire life. He said, I was standing on trial. It was my first defense. I needed just one friend to stand up and speak up for me, to vouch for me on, in that moment of trial. And my friends were gone except Jesus. And yet, he says, greetings, friends. You know, what's coming through there? I think what's coming through is this that Paul has the ability to say to his friends, even when they have failed him, this isn't the only thing I know about you. That, that day you let me down, that's not the only thing I know about you. It doesn't erase the whole history and story of what God had done in my life through you. The gospel doesn't make Christian friendships perfect. Can I say that again? Even the gospel doesn't make Christian friendships Perfect. The gospel doesn't arm us to burn bridges the moment somebody lets us down, the moment somebody disappoints us. How many church hopping people would not be hopping from churches if we had tenacity to actually forbear after somebody says something stupid? I'll forbear. This isn't the only thing I know about you. You broke my heart yesterday, but I'm going nowhere because we're friends in Christ. The gospel doesn't urge me to get my pound of flesh before I'm willing to reconcile. See how beautiful the gospel's work is in the church? Paul says, greet them. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Have you freed your friends from the burden of never disappointing you? How can Paul do that? Paul can do that because he says, every last one of my friends flaked out on me on a pretty important day, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in that moment. Friends, the best thing about the Christian faith is Jesus and there's not a close second. <laughs> the best thing about the Christian faith is Jesus because departures happen and friends disappoint us and trials come but the Lord, Paul said, in my darkest hour, stood with me. It's like Paul lets you go back to that moment at his first defense, at his first trial, and he lets you see him standing there friendless, and he lets you hear the music that's singing in his heart. And what's the music that's singing in his heart? What a friend we have in Jesus. He remembers. Friends were gone, but what a friend Christ was. And he stood with me and he strengthened me when my friends let me down. That's why I say the hardest thing about this passage is the most beautiful thing about this passage. Because it's this, if you trust in Jesus, maybe today's the day you trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus today, you will never be alone. In your darkest hour, you will never be alone. Your friends may disappoint you, you will never be alone. But, but let me quickly add, church, since we're called to be the body of Christ, what do we want to be for our friends? Present, here, standing with them, not deserting our friends. I, I finished, um, so I spent most of this year just journaling, very, very slowly walking through the pastoral epistles. And uh, journaling, making observations, marking up my Bible, and then committing some of those observations into the form of prayers. And when I came to the end of, of 2 Timothy, these were my closing observations and prayers from this passage several months ago. God, give me endurance in the race. And then second, 
this is an observation, longevity in ministry is sustained by faithful friendship. Third, some who are running the race will not remain in the race. Keep me faithful. And then fourth, some who seem unuseful may yet prove useful. Help me to not give up on them or your work in them. This is the church. We have the opportunity because of the, the gospel is as good as it is to run the race, to run the distance, to run it with joy, and to run together.